Hello, and welcome to Shakespeare, the roundtable discussion podcast where we talk about Shakespeare. My name is Chase, your mostly quiet producer. Today, we continue to talk about the taming of the shrew. If you like what we're doing here, please support us at our network, Patreon, patreon.com slash ghostlightmedia. With that, on with the show. So I'm going to be moving soon. Yeah. I haven't really talked about a whole lot, at least publicly. So yeah, I'm taking a, it's a lateral move. It's a transfer um, to set up for a potential promotion. Oh. Um, because we're currently on a hiring freeze, promotion freeze because of the pandemic and everything like that. Um, so, uh, it doesn't, it, it doesn't which is nice. Um, but yeah, so lateral move, but moving a couple hours away. Uh, still be in the great state of Ohio, in Flavortown. As we are now calling it. Yes, uh, in Seabus, but I'll be, yeah, I'll be moving down that direction soon-ish. I've already started working out of that office. You going to be able to get me crew tickets? I don't know. Is any is is sport being played this year? Oh yeah, no, nothing's being played. Um. So yeah, so I'm gonna be moving away, which is gonna be interesting for figuring out recording schedules and stuff like that. But we should still be able to make everything work. Um, there may be some times when I have to record remotely or something like that. Or I still haven't told my children yet. <laughs> that you guys are moving away. Ooh. Oh no! It's gonna. I. I don't know when or how to tell them that Izzy's moving away because they will be so sad. Well, and then, like I said, like we have said, it's, it's not, not far. far. We will still be able to get together and hang out and stuff like that. There. Yeah. yeah. It's we see. Yeah. It's just kind of. It's. I am sad because you have been my friend for 20 years. Yep. Oh, no. Uh, but you've moved uh, to Cleveland in that time frame, didn't no, you? No, I didn't, I didn't move to Cleveland. I, I never left. I thought you left. No, I never left. Oh, yeah. We left. We did. You guys left. left. You left us, but you came back. back. Did you move to Toledo? No. I've lived in three towns in my entire life. I thought you were more like I li- I lived in well I I guess I briefly I lived in Monclova between leases. Oh, I wouldn't have known where Monclova was. Yeah, between leases, like we were like our one like the one lease ended in May or something, and we were waiting and we had to wait uh, the summer to get a, our new lease or something, and we lived yeah. we lived together briefly up there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that I would have been like Monclova. Is that Medina? That's probably why I thought you that could be. No. That could be. Um, but yeah, places. so they're very different places. So yeah. moving to moving to Flavortown, um, it'll be interesting. I'm gonna have a whole lot of new places to learn and stuff like that. Um, a whole lot of good beer in the Sea Bus area, Actually, the Greater Sea yeah. Bus area. I'm still, I'm still. This is my beer of the summer. Columbus the, Brewing, yeah. yeah. Summer Teeth is my beer of the summer. It's my favorite. I've really enjoyed it. I've had it every single podcast that we've done like remotely sure because nobody can judge what i'm drinking fair enough so yeah um except for that one where all the grocery stores were out of beer and i had to drink molson (laughs) (laughs) i like molson it's just 
But so, you know, like, uh, you know, Brew Dog is down there and then there's Columbus Brewing. There's several good breweries around the area. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'll be back up north. So it's not like I won't be able to get my BG Beer Works or Ice Tier Fix in, you know, when I come visit people. Oh, certainly. Nope, we won't let you drink little beers anymore. We don't need to. There's Bowling Green Beers. So fine, restrict restrict Toledo beers. Okay, I'll just drink Bowling Green beer, and that's perfectly fine with me. My next thought was, oh my gosh, what are they? What's the curling team gonna do without you? And then I remembered, oh yeah, there's also no curling this year. Well, there might be curling. Um, there's been a lot of talk on that. Uh, the Cur- National Curling Association was talking about masked uh, curling, so everybody. Wearing masks on the ice while curling, also doing, uh, going to, taking out the handshake, which is, uh, you know, before and after every match thing, you know. I still have clients who want to shake my hand. That super weirds ta- me ta- out. Tap, yeah. tap and brooms or, or whatever. Oh, I like you know. tap and brooms. Instead, um, no, and I will, I will miss, I will miss curling with the lads. Um, there is luckily a curling club not far from my new office. So, uh, I could potentially still curl in Columbus, but I'll have to find a whole new crew of lads to Ooh, curl with. I'm going to have to find friends again. I know. You haven't Ugh. had to make friends in years. It's yeah, the luckily, worst. Luckily, it's so I do, bad. I do have some friends there. When, when Hannah told me that you guys were moving away, it was on a hormonal downswing for me anyway. It was quarantine time, and I laid on my couch going, now I have no friends, which I clearly have plenty. I have lots of friends. I was going to say, rude. I have lots of friends. Clearly, no. I'm too old to know how to make friends. This I can absolutely agree with. To which Chris, again, explained, you have lots of friends. Um, You make friends easily, and this is not the end of the world. While I laid on the couch going, fuck you, Ryan. <laughs> um, um, but that's just, no, and, that's and just a Thursday there, night most of the time. There are a lot of, there are a lot of people that we're going to miss the ease with which it is for us to be able to hang out. There'll be a lot more we have to plan. We have to plan anyway. Like you guys are an hour away. Yeah, but I, we have to, we'll have to plan more because it's like we'll have to come up for like a weekend. It's, it's less, less day trips. Yeah, but making friends as an adult is hard. Yeah. It is. There's, it is. It's very difficult. There have been studies done that say, like, to really form a close, lasting friendship with someone, you have to basically spend 200 hours with them. And so when you're in school together with people, yeah. it's easy because you're spending 200 well, that's, that's hours why, with them. That's why some of my best friends, like, the the two people that I'm probably the closest to are friends that I've had since my college days. That's me and John. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But... <gasps> I was just fucking around. Really? Yeah, it is. <laughs> you guys, you guys are two of my closest friends. I've known you long, forever. I love you, fuck face. Oh, I love you too, <laughs> fuck rocket. Um, no, yeah, you guys are, you guys are like probably, you know, two closest friends, you know, I'm, and obviously there's other friends that are close as well. But, you know, I've known you for 20 years. I've yeah. known John for 21 years. You know, it's Cassie and I not. Even though it is hard to believe, not too terribly long ago, did make the move and like lived in another state for a while, yeah. where friends were not a quick and easy drive away, and it was hard. Making friends as an adult is 
tough. Heck, I've been friends with Chase Greenleaf for yeah. what a at least a decade now. Yeah, it was. Because no, yeah. Cassie and I have, you know, we started dating just over a decade ago. I remember it was being, 2010 when you guys moved away. I remember thinking, "Ha ha, I live in Bowling Green. Cassie has to come back here. I have her grandparents." <laughs> <laughs> It's true, though. It's true. <laughs> yeah. So I like I always knew you guys would come back here at least in November. That I would at least be able to see you guys a couple times a year. Um, that you'd be around. Well, and honestly, the big, a big, big portion of our decision to move back and to move back here specifically was the summer we got married. We spent like three weeks up here. You did. I I had well, to go back. Like, I, I spent had, more time. But I had I had a total of three weeks off of work. Yeah. Um. One of those, like, I spent two days in transit, a couple of days in Akron, where most, where a good chunk of my family is, you know, was at that point based out of. They've since dispersed. Um. And then maybe a week here, and then a week on our honeymoon. Yeah. And then. Back to Virginia. You were here for like yeah. Like I was after here our longer. After our honeymoon, you were up here like a week longer than I was. Well, I, I stayed through Emily's you wedding. Had another wedding that you could go to. Yeah, I was working retail at the time. Yeah, and could not attend my new wife's cousin's <laughs> wedding. Yeah, which is a problem with the American retail system. Yeah, but one of the things that we talked about when we got back to Virginia after being up here was. Going to Virginia didn't feel like we were going home. It felt like we were leaving home. Coming here was... Coming here was like, well, we're going to go home. And so we we talked about that. You know, if that's our reality and we've been down in Virginia for two years at that point, and it doesn't feel like home, and the people that we know there don't feel like... Home. Like home, then we should probably just go go where our people are. Yeah. Like, I, I, I think the exact conversation was... This sucks. You want to move home? Yeah. Here, here. I'm glad you guys did. Yeah. yeah and no, it it's, was, it's... it was, you know, I don't think we've ever, we've ever talked about this in the, you know, 70 odd episodes of this show. But like the move back here was really just a let's go home. Let's yeah. stop fighting the reality of the situation. And when we moved, it was because we had kind of, like we graduated college, then we just didn't leave. And so we, we were asking that question of, are we only in this town because momentum? We're, we're be, we lost momentum. We should go see if we can be successful somewhere else. And so we did. And we were. And then we're like, okay, enough of that. Yeah, we, so, didn't, we didn't like it. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, this so, sucks. Yeah, this Let's sucks. hang out and with so our we friends. Made, we made our, our choice to come back to where our people were. Because for the most part, our people... Who we met in college are still well, ni- in this 90, area. Ninety percent of my friends are in the Toledo Bowling Green area, and that some of them have scattered. I have, you know, I probably not ninety percent because I have a decent chunk that live out in Chicago. I have some spread further afield, um, but a large portion of my friends are mm-hmm. in this area. Yeah, it, well. There is this wonderful thing that has happened, and I'm sure it happens with other group of friends, but there is this wonderful feeling of family that I feel is really solid, and it keeps me happy to be in Toledo. Mm -hmm. It keeps me happy to be here, that I've got 
people I've known for 20 years. I've got friends who've been stuck with me for 11, 13 years. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. Like, if it was a cat, it would be old. Our yeah. friendship. Well worn. Our friendship is an old cat. Is an old cat. <sighs> it is a middle schooler. It is middle. Uh, no, our- I'd rather be an old cat. Can we just, like, because an old cat means we can, like, sit and read books and drink tea. But there's always, there's this wonderful sense of family. Mm-hmm. For sure. My holidays, like today, July 4th, it's really weird. It's really, and I don't know, like, I, other holidays have come and gone that we've been stuck in quarantine, and I haven't cared. I didn't give you shit. Like, Memorial Day that it was in quarantine, it's fine. July 4th was a really weird one. Because that is a day that I tend to spend with People. this little extended family. Right. Like, we've always... Chris used to throw huge parties. We've always done something for the... Yeah, no, there's... You know, the, the city fireworks. usually has fireworks. Yeah, and, you know, back in the day, we would... technically having fireworks, as you may be able to hear. Yeah. It's pop- well, I don't know if that's a city uh, or if that's our neighbors, Our neighbors were putting off fireworks yesterday while I was trying to listen to Hamilton, and I was not impressed <laughs> <laughs> uh, Cassie and I had the opportunity to go and watch Hamilton at a, you know, respectable social distance with, uh, one of the parents of, um, of her, the theater organization that she works with. And, uh, Ooh, they did the set boonies. up fireworks in the intermission, but that didn't stop both neighbors on either side setting off fireworks during the whole thing. During the show. Good. I'm glad I'm not the only one who had to listen to that. But yeah, so I like it will be weird being like now you live you lived like twenty minutes from my old office in mm-hmm. Holland. I could go down to Chrissy Road and hang a right and you know Now they know where I live. I didn't give them your address. Thanks, Ryan. I just said but Chrissy Road. There's also things like Hannah has worked less than a mile, maybe mile and a half from where I work for almost a year. <laughs> and we always go, oh, let's go get coffee. Let's go get lunch. Never done it. Not yeah. at once. It's hard to do. Yeah. So even as adults, as we spread out, luckily phones and texting and all that kind of stuff, still there. Well, yeah. And, and like I said, I will still be coming up to Bowling Green on a, on the regular or at least semi-regular. I mean, and that's what we tell ourselves. And speaking of telling ourselves things. We got man, a lot of telling we, we have to a, do to other people. We got a lot of telling. All right. So <laughs> let's get back onto this because yeah. eventually I'm going to fall asleep. So this, we've is, got... this is Shakespeare. I'm Ryan Halfhill. I'm Beth Wars. Cassie Greenley. Chase Greenley. We got a whole fuckload of pins. We got 11 pins, not counting our perma pins, which we will be discussing in depth. Okay. Tonight. Where do we want to start? Um, well, I've. Arranged them in order of... <gasps> oh, I uh, love how organized you are. Not, like, definitively, but these two definitely at the beginning and these definitely at Okay, so what should we start um, with? So, one of the questions we asked first is, why Sly? And I want to take this opportunity to introduce you all to another play. It's called Taming of a Shrew. And any similarity it may bear to the Shakespeare play The Taming of the Shrew that came out two years prior is completely coincidental. But Taming of a Shrew has much more in the way of scenes with Sly. Oh, yes? He is peppered in throughout 
the narrative. That's where the additional sly passages come from. And he like closes the show out at the end. And, and um, the, but to answer your question, why sly? Why sly? No fucking reason. Why sly? None. No reason except for he's basically like, like we talked about briefly, he's talking shit about Kit Marlowe. I'm thick. I honestly think it's Burbage. I think Burbage wanted to talk some smack, and Bill was like, fine. Do you want to know why this is Burbage? Do you want to know? Yes, please. Yeah. Okay. Enlighten me. So, this has no basis in fact or history. All right. So, I'm pretty sure that this is Burbage, because in this play, there is no great comedic role. And Richard Burbage probably had a buddy who he wanted to see on that stage. And he was like, hey, I like the play you've written. Um, but there's no cross-dressing. And there's not really any slapstick. And there's no funny bits. I mean, kind of some, but not a lot. It's called a comedy, but we'll get into that. Uh-huh. So if you could write little bits to pepper in there... That would be, I don't know, funny. Put somebody cross-dressing in there. How about that? How about that? Can we get that? Can we get a boy dressed as a woman I've written woman who's so many plays be? that have cross-dressing in them. No, no, no. One more. One more. Perfect. Nope. Nope. One more. Bur- look. Yeah. If no, we, Richard. Look, if I don't you put fucking my... fucking dick. If I don't put my kid back up on this stage right now, my his, what, his mother is never going to sleep with me again. Fine. I don't give a fuck about your coitus, Richard. Uh, well, you should, because my coitus plays your coyness. <laughs> See what I did there? That's why you're the writer. Write the play! But this uh, <laughs> this also introduces um, what was a fairly common practice at the time with Elizabethan theater, back before we had copyrights, is that people's competitors would like pay small urchin children to like go watch plays... And then come back and, like, report as much of it as they could remember. Yeah, they'd steal the bits. They'd steal the bits. And this happened a lot after Shakespeare actually died, um, which is what led to the impetus to get the first folio published in the first place. But that's definitely what happened here. And this is an early one. This is This is believed to be one of Shakespeare's earliest plays. Oh, goodness. Could it also be believed to be one of his last? No, this one. No, this is pretty firmly dated in like 1590s. And there's no authorship question with this one. Either. No, um, but it is thought to be one of his first comedies. Comedy in quotes. Um, well, and you know, but, honestly, this being early makes a lot of sense for why yeah. this is also a comedy. I have a hard time saying comedy when I'm talking about this play. It's it, a comedy because it's not a tragedy. It is a tragedy. Well, it, it's. <laughs> Yes, but it no doesn't one follow dies. the tragedy structure. No, it does not. It does so, not follow the tragedy structure. It does not follow the romance structure. Yeah. And all those romances were his later works anyway, a lot of them. Yeah. Um, but this play, this other alternate play did exist, Taming of Ashrew, that did more with Sly. Because that's what's so bizarre to me about this one, is that Sly is literally just in the beginning, and then we never see him again. All, all it is is literally a prologue setup of like, Hey, we're going to put this drunk guy in here for a little bit of laughs before we get to the sad. Yeah. So, why Sly? No reason. Let's cut him. Yep, cut him completely. And that can segue 
pretty nicely into talking about this as comedy. Yeah, so when we talk about Much Ado, it's a comedy, right? Yeah. There are parts that are funny. Quarrelsome lovers, it's, you know, There's some laugh out loud moments. And there's some witty moments in here. I just don't find them laugh out loud. They're just like, "Eh, that's kind of clever. So maybe a chuckle. So, but it's not funny. So when Tyler directed this, I auditioned for Petruchio. And Ryan Zarecki auditioned for Petruchio. And Tyler and I, he cast Zarecki as Petruchio. And he, he and I had a long talk afterwards, you know. And I had been, I had been off the stage for a while. I hadn't acted in a while. I was rough. Um, but we had a lot, you know, he's like, your Petruchio was a lot darker that I'm trying to put on for Shakespeare in the Park for beautiful kids. He's like, I would like to do your taming at some point. But not. <laughs> but because I think that Petruchio is a dark character. It is a mean, he is mean-spirited. He is, it, this this play is not a comedy. And this There is, are witty yeah. moments, but it is not a comedy. Petruchio is a scary, sadistic individual. Realistically, yeah, Matthew Good should be playing him. Yeah, yeah. And we'll talk about this at the end because um, we've got some dual questions at the end about like how how can you fix this basically. And we touched on this a little bit at the beginning of the last episode. Um, and I'm going to say it again. I feel like, especially now in the wake of the Me Too movement. Um, in the wake of the, the call out culture that we're finding ourselves in where we are demanding that society start thinking about its media more critically, which is 100% valid, good. We need to do that. There should be a lot more whistleblowing and things like that. And it should be, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think in this day and age, I think it's always been this way, but especially now because we are forcing people to be aware of it. And you can't, we're not letting people rest on the excuse anymore of, well, it's a product of its time. I think to put this play on as a ha ha ha, isn't this funny comedy is reprehensible. It is irresponsible and it is reprehensible. I don't think it was written that way. I don't think it was written to be a ha 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 funny comedy. You can pull the slapstick, I guess. Like this is devil's advocate, clearly not my actual thoughts. You could pull a slapstick, I've seen it, with the denying of food, like you're handing it to her, and then it's, like, as she's reaching for it, you're turning, so there's kind of that, like, she can never grab it funny moment, but that's still It's mean. still, it's still reprehensible. Yeah. Like, you can make it funny to people who are only paying attention to the surface level of what you're right. doing, but the second you start to think about it more. And so we talked a little bit at the beginning of the last you episode. You pay attention to the words. Yeah. You... About, we talked a little bit about one of the ways that you can direct it is to direct it super dark, is to make it like, no, 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 we recognize that what is happening to Kate. This is a cautionary tale. Is horrifying. But welcome to the world we live in. People do get treated like this, and, and there's no... And, and, and that's so if you direct that's this, the Vitruvio that I would play. Yeah, if you direct this to make the audience uncomfortable, good. If you're going to do this play straight and not try to fix it, you have to leave the audience uncomfortable at the end of it. So I've had conversations about this play with people in the kink community who 
we're looking at Trukio as uh, a dom training a sub. And as we were talking about it, one of the things that kept coming up was consent. We're like, there, you know what, the more we think about it, there's no consent. There's no consent, there's no submission, there's a she force. She doesn't agree. So it doesn't even play on that level. So you can't even try to put it out there as like a kink talk or as it's not even as something that that's going to be of an alternate culture. It's just it's not. It doesn't fit within the parameters of anybody's comfort levels. Certainly not there's a healthy no, one. Yeah, there's no consent here. Well, it's no, it's it's demanding. it's kink in the same way that Fifty Shades of Grey is. That's right. not. Well. I mean, Fifty there's, Shades there's of still, Grey is like, a horribly abusive relationship as well, very similar to this. Right, right, but there's still a level of consent that is missing in this that is not as much. Like, that, it's just, that's not how, <laughs> I, kink Fifth, isn't a blanket statement, like, not everybody's thing is going to be the same but as Fifty the Shades person, of Grey but, was was a BDSM novel that was written by someone who obviously has no understanding of the and, culture. And I read novels, for instance, uh, Anne Rice wrote a series. It's the um, Awakening of Sleeping Beauty. Taming? taming? I don't know. I didn't Either way, read them. It's a, her Sleeping Beauty series. And the way that writes the Dom subculture and the kink culture is about it's still all about consent. Yeah. There has to be consent. Oh, 100%. And there's always a trigger moment, I guess, but there has to be the consent, and there is no consent in this play. So as these conversations are happening about this particular play, like they came into it thinking like, yeah, Petruchio is an excellent caricature of a dom in culture. No. Because there's no dom, there's the dom sub relationship. Yeah, well, well, the dom sub relationship's about trust, and this is there's no trust here. This is a, a gaslighting, abusive relationship. Right. Yeah, let's talk about gaslighting. Yeah, let's yep. do that. Well, Since that's a, the next pin. I've got a pin that says "Yay, gaslighting," and then I listed some people underneath it who are being gaslit through this whole play. Christopher Sly. Yep. If you keep him in. His whole situation is a gaslighting situation. Yep. This dude saw a drunk in the street asleep and went, you know, it'd be real funny. Gaslighting him. Is if we made that guy think that he's a lord. Again, that's trading places. And that is gaslighting as well. Then you've got Baptista, who honestly is, well, he's, he is not, he is is both gaslighting and is gaslit. Yeah. So you've definitely got I don't I don't know with him that it's the same kind of like malicious intent. Right. Which is an important distinction. So with a narcissistic personality or the people who tend to gaslight, it's not always something that's done consciously. So I don't think he's consciously being gross to his daughter. I don't think he's trying to degrade her. I no. Think no, but I'm talking more about this whole elaborate workaround that's happening to him so oh, that, by, that the, sure, by yeah. the by so the other people let, in the play. Let's take a second. The the difference between being gaslit and being lied to. Yes. Because they're that's, different. No, and it's an important distinction for sure. I don't feel that he is being gaslit because 
no part of being gaslit is them making you feel it's all in, it's really it's all in your head right and yeah, so the guys do come true. clean at the end they're like hey we tricked you right and i feel like at no point in time are they trying to make him feel like he's crazy he never right. has a clue of what's going on no yeah he's just he's, he's just just dude he's just plot dumb right so i feel like the suitors are they're tricking him they're tricking him it's lying it's tricking it's not gaslighting in my mind However, what he does to Katerina is a, it is a form of gaslighting. Yeah. Because she is raised with this, she is constantly reaffirmed and reaffirmed and reaffirmed that she is bad, she is a shrew, and she has a bad temper. And I, I really want to see, oh, I said I wasn't going to do this in the beginning. And, you and I told you, I, you told me, I, I told you we were going to. Every, I would be How many places have I walked in I know. going, this play is a <laughs> shitty play. I hate this play. It's moral reprehensible. If I have to see this play put on, I want to see a Kate who is not played as a horrible bitch. Yeah. I want to see a Kate who is played just as a woman living her life and not wanting to be signed away in marriage to somebody she doesn't know just so her little sister can get some. And I feel like we get that a little bit in 10 Things I Hate About You. And the father in that is not gaslighting his daughter. We are definitely going to talk about 10 Things yeah. I Hate well, About so You. That's, a, that's an incredibly to... important adaptation of this play. Yes. And that, I think, is going to fall into the, like, how can it be fixed? Because I think that movie fixes this play very, very well. Okay. But... Well, I also don't think it's written that she is a horrible bitch. She's not. She does. T- okay, she does we tie her up her sister s- and smack her around. Well, a yeah, bit. but what did her sister do off stage? What did her sister do off camera to deserve it? Well, because I had a little brother. I still have a little brother. <laughs> I want to say, had you have? Don't you have two? I have an older brother and a younger brother. Okay, I was worried for a second <laughs> that I got that wrong. And maybe, maybe one was gone. Yeah. But I haven't talked about Troy in a while. Is he okay? (laughs) He's overseas. I want to play with this, like, perception, basically, of Kate. Like, how does the audience perceive her based against how do the characters talk about her? And that will tie in with, like, my workaround for this play for how to fix it. But we'll get to that. So, the last name on there is is Kate. Kate. And it's pretty, I mean, it's pretty obvious. Yeah, no. This She's... dress is not good enough, so he makes her feel like he is trying to be the best husband possible, the best man she possible. She just doesn't understand everything he's trying to do for her. While denying food, denying clothes. While, so, while the, literally taking away everything as he offers it. There's the overt, the sky is green, the moon is the sun, it's seven, it's two, that's an old woman, that or a young woman, that's an old man. Those those moments aren't, those are too overt for gaslighting. Like, it's how we see that it's worked. Yeah. But it's the, you can't have the mutton, it's terrible. Nothing but the best is good enough for you. What's this, mutton? So, we have to talk about the Richard Burton, uh, Elizabeth Taylor, because it did change well, a lot of stuff for me. That is adaptations. That, adaptation. Yeah, adaptation. we will. We will so, well, that one's not even an adaptation, it's just a film version. The script. So at some point in time, 
you have to decide, does Kate just give in and be like, fine, whatever he fucking says, because if I do what he fucking says, I get my food, or does Kate actually start to believe that what Petruchio is saying is right? Or is Kate that working he, him? He is the best. Or is Kate working him? Well, that's the first one. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I give in to you, yeah. I get the food. No, no, I mean, is Kate taming Petruchio? I see at no point in time does Petruchio give in to Kate in slightest. He thinks he wins at the end. He does think. I don't see him give in to her ever once. No, but Petruchio is the sure. How does she tame him? I'm just saying that Petruchio is the one who distributes Jewish behavior throughout the entire play. If that is the case, then it is entirely on the director to make it that. The text as written, as we see it, it's 100% is Petruchio doing the taming, not right. being... Oh, no, no, I get it. Yeah, and, and, it's like, and, we're examining the text, not the yeah. ideal production. No, and, yeah. and well, the idea, the, the Petruchio, Petruchio becomes, or acts the way he does, supposedly, to show Kate that her behavior... Her behaving like that is unpleasant and whatnot, and that's supposedly why he acts that way. Obviously, we know that's not the case. He's just a dick. <laughs> yeah. Well, the concept of bringing a woman to heal um, hasn't been gone from our society ever. Not even now. But bringing a woman to heal is is what we're reading about. I mean, well, that's and then, what's then going on. There's some yeah. adaptations that uh, directly tie into that. You know, you know, when we were going to talk about when we get to those. Yeah. Yeah. And so this, we can tie this in with one of our permanent pens, because one of our permanent pens is agency of women. Yeah. And Kate has none. Not, like, for a, all that, not a single bit. For all that people hold her up as like, she's one of the recognizable names in right. terms of who are Shakespeare's females. Oh, Kate from Taming of the Shrew. And but for all that, she is not at the same level as Beatrice or Rosalind so, or and I Juliet. think I think the reason I think the reason that people put her higher up is because of the Elizabeth Taylor, yeah, Richard Burton film version from the what late fifties, early sixties, or was it what late sixties? From the sixties of second time they were married. Yeah. Um. Because she delivers that speech at the end and gives it with a a wink and a nod to the audience, like... Well, and you can, for sure. And that's how a lot of productions do, because this big speech that she gives, it's full of lines, like, uh, that for me, at least when I'm reading, it's hard to say them without that sarcastic edge to it. Um, because, you know... Thy husband is thy lord, thy life, thy keeper, thy head, thy sovereign, one that cares for thee. Like, I have to read that with that tone of voice. Because to read it, like, sincerely kills part of my soul. Well, and I'm honestly, I'm honestly, in my opinion, it was written to be delivered that way. Yeah, and there's evidence to support that. And the evidence that supports it, as I talked about in the first um, episode is that this is the longest speech in yep. the play, and Shakespeare uses language so deliberately. 
the way that he puts speeches together matters and the the way that he puts words in people's mouths matter and the fact that he spends the most lineage in this play and gives it to this woman talking about how and why women should be silent and submissive to their husbands like that's not an accident no it's subversive and and, it's meant to be and if you examine the rest of the works of shakespeare as we've talked about over and over again Shakespeare often is portraying incredibly feminist ideas super early. 400 yeah. years ago. Because if, if we years. wanted to show that Kate was actually submissive to her husband in all things, these words would be Petruchio's. Yep. He would bring her in. She would, she would come to heal. She would come to heal. He would ask her questions and she would say, yes, of course, my lord. But he doesn't. He, he would, lets her go for 45 lines. Then he would deliver the crux of that. Yeah. So. But she does it. And there's always... That's, that's part of the reason I have trouble reconciling this play with itself sometimes. Is because on the whole it is so problematic. And the biggest question is always how do you address the rest of it in such a way as to give that last speech that power and subversion that I believe is part of it. And that's a really hard question to answer. Yeah. But if you're going to direct this one, it's a question you have to You answer. have to answer, yeah. You have to 100%. answer. 100%. Um, but the Richard Burton is 67. 67. 67. I'm going to say it was colorized, so, so yeah. I know it's in the 60s. Yeah. So let's, let's uh, what's next? Um, so we can, this one I intended, so this is who wins father of the year. This is one of those questions. That would be throw the up, made up father. We can throw up, um, alongside if you could Frankenstein and Shakespeare rom-com, like what elements would yeah, you take what would you, what would you do? I'm talking like across the board. I'm talking, I can tell you who doesn't. Polonius before. and, and Pericles and of you know, all the fathers we, we see, have, we haven't Polonius, talked about the, Polonius is not that bad of a dad. We haven't talked about it yet, so we can't really bring up. We can't really get into Polonius and but the ghost oh, of Hamlet. That's right. Yeah, the ghost. But, is your so who dad? wins? Well, yeah, go, the ghost of Hamlet. Can you Hamlet? Hey. Hamlet is actually should be Hamlet Junior, Prince of Denmark, because they both have the name Hamlet. So, so your favorite dad is the one who's like, hey, hey, hey. Can you go crazy? And no, maybe, it doesn't say go crazy. Can you maybe kill, kill avenge, someone? For me? Avenge me. That's all he asks. Uh, but so there's, kill there's, my brother. <laughs> avenge me. There's there's two ways to look at this question. I want legitimately who's the Shakespeare Father of the Year and who is the Shakespeare? Actually, ah, that's the Father of the Year over there. Actually, two of my favorite fathers in Shakespeare we haven't gotten to yet. <laughs> That's valid. But I was thinking about, wow, we were talking about Pericles and what an awful father Both he is. Both of your favorite fathers may put their children into danger frequently. <laughs> you don't know who the other one is. It's McDuff. No, actually, is was it not. Is ba- it Banquo? Banquo. I knew it was going to be one of those two. Well, cause what happens, fathers in that play, what happens to Banquo's kid? Uh, Flans escapes. Does he? Yeah. We'll get to that. Um, but this we'll, is, we'll talk about that. Um, <laughs> this is an important question I, I want us to keep considering is 
So my my father of the year, my jokey father of the year right now, is going to go all the way back to As You Like It, where dad's just fucking chilling in the forest while his <laughs> daughter is being given such a hard time. Rosaline has such a hard time at court. She's treated so poorly that she and her cousin run off to the forest to find her father, who's just holding court, drinking tea like a mad fucking hatter. I'm sorry, but the answer is actually incest king. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> oh! How did you forget about incest? Oh, incest king. Uh, yeah. Ooh. I'm tr- like I'm right now. I'm like, which one was incest king? Is that Pericles? I think it's Cymbeline. Cymbeline. Oh, that's why I forgot. No, incest king. Uh, incest king is Pericles. Yeah, that's what I thought. Because that's why Pericles runs away. What is Cymbeline about? There's because incest Peric- and Cymbeline. Because, because Pericles figures out the well, incest. What is Cymbeline about? <laughs> Pericles figures out that Incest King is fucking his daughter, and that's and he that's why he runs off because Incest King is trying to have him killed. But there's an Incest King in Cymbeline too, because when we were at the dinner table with my extended family, and I was like, "Chase, what's Cymbeline about?" and he was like, "Incest," and I went, "Right, that's that one." I I genuinely can also not remember what Cymbeline is about. <laughs> oh, we need to Cymbeline, go back okay, and listen so to Cymbeline our own is podcast. about. Uh, if you would okay, if you would like to learn more about Cymbeline, oh, it was please. Cloten. Do you remember Cloten? I remember Cloten. Please, <laughs> please go back and listen to episode fifty-one of the Shakespeare podcast <laughs> and, clearly, and fifty-two. Clearly, we need to do the same. Yeah, Episodes was, fifty-one and fifty-two. And so please just insert insert me talking about what episodes it's in. Chase, just just cover everything. With oh that. yeah, no, I already put the marker <laughs> and I'll cut it down. Episodes fifty-one and fifty-two of the Shakespeare podcast. We'll yeah, tell you whatever all about you look, whatever about did make it into the episode, assume that it was way longer and way more embarrassing because uh, we just we don't we don't remember, Nothing. and that's the thing. Like we all have to go back and re-listen to those re-listen episodes. To those, yep, that's why some of these plays that you're like, man, I have read Taming of the Shrew four million times. I've been in it twice. Uh, I've watched seven hundred adaptations of it. But we still got to read it again for this because I the forgot shit about you Chris- forget. Yeah, I forgot about Christopher Sly. So I got to it. I'm like, what well, because both times I've been shit. in the play, he's been cut. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so um, I think the next one that I have written down is why so much disguise, and I think the big actual question for this is like, why is it so complicated? Why is this it's literally, with it's, Bianca so complicated? It's literally just to try and slip past Batista when they don't even have to disguise. Like, okay, Hortensio maybe because it's assumed at least that Baptista knows Hortensio. So for him to become a tutor and get close, he's got to go in disguise. So, but Lucentio could legit just have been like, but Lucentio's, hey. Lucentio's an unknown character, right? Yeah, he doesn't have to be in disguise. He doesn't have to have well, No, I hear, do I hear what you're saying. But he still needs it to be known that he is noble and worthy of being married. That the name Lucentio is noble and worthy of marriage. So if Which he walks in there... Which is why he has there, Tranio pretend to be him. That's what I'm saying. So that's why he did that. Now, why is it so complicated? Um... Because Shakespeare likes a romp. <laughs> this is just a romp. It's like, there are so many plays that are like this, of mistaken identities or pretending to be someone you're not. Yeah, but they all do it better. And more interesting. Yes. This is complicated, <laughs> needlessly, because maybe it's the first time he did it. 
That's we did talk true. about this being an early work. That is work. true. So, so maybe he improved on that idea. Maybe he's later. like, I really like them all dressing up as someone else. Uh, next time, let's do it where the women dresses other women and talk rings off of husband fingers. Okay, let's do that. Break. So, so there's always this, like, let's dress up and make something complicated. Let's make somebody well, think we're someone else. Aspect. Yeah, and the, he's not the only one who does it. He's not the first one who does it. He won't be the last one who does it. happens in Greek tragedies. It'll happen, well, it happens in Greek comedies. But either way, why is it so complicated? It's poorly written. <laughs> yeah, that's. Yeah, that's kind of like that's where a, I just, land on it. That's all it like, is. I don't understand why there need to be three guys vying well, this for is, yeah, this if you got, is, if okay, you so got this is the Titus Andronicus of comedies. Yeah, it is. Titus was one of his earliest plays. It's his bloodiest work. It is. It's a murder romp. You know, there's cannibalism. It's a murder romp. It is. TM, TM, TM. <laughs> don't worry. No one else wants it. Hey, I would wear a t-shirt that says Titus is a murder romp. And everybody would be like, Titus Andromedon? There's but no yeah, cultural... I, I just... It's so needlessly complicated. It doesn't need to be that complicated. There don't it, need to be so that many characters. You made a good point. Again, I'm playing devil's advocate because apparently that's where I am today. I did watch Cats, so who knows what's going on in my <laughs> Who knows what's happening with your brain? So... You said earlier something that I really liked about those three. You see, many things I like. Don't be surprised. I'm, I, yeah. Shock okay, face. cool. So there's three suitors, yes. right? The first one is going after the father. The second one is going after the daughter. Each answer takes the time to go after both. So Shakespeare will do this again in Hamlet, where there's three sons. One who's all thought and no action. One who's all action and no thought. And one's a combination of both. So this, like, trinity kind of thing mm -hmm. will happen again and again but i hadn't thought of it that way and so that i could see that being why to make it so complicated now i think that it's an interesting point he's trying to make poorly that's fair and he's I think trying to do something intricate badly yeah. and i think if it was just those three plus the one servant it would be okay but there's like so many just additional servants. Yeah. That get added we have Biandello like, and Tranio and Grumio. Like there are some there are some names in this cast list that we never said once in our synopsis because King's players gotta get paid, yo. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah, that's that's really all I got on that. Yeah. I think it's needlessly yeah. complicated and I do I do as well. honed his ideas well yeah. yet. I think I see what he's trying to do, and I don't know where I would cut it. Right. Because I like the point you're making, but if we were doing just the chase for Bianca, that'd be one thing. But then we're also doing this yeah. gaslighting of Kate. So we've got two separate things that are both complicated, which makes the unnecessary one feel worse. Yeah. And that leads us to, uh, we've got three pins here that are about Kate. Okay. You wanted to talk about female safety and Kate as a character. Yeah. Um, I also wrote who sides with Kate, and I mean that in terms of like viewers and not characters within the play, because within the play, nobody sides with Kate. Nobody. Um, maybe Petruchio in the end. Maybe. But as people observing who sides with Kate. And then also this question of do we need to make Kate likable in order to sympathize with her? 
Because we've talked a little bit about like, well, she's probably not as much of a shrew as we want to make her likable. We want to make her likable. But is there a way to do this play where you let her be as much of a a a shrewish person as everyone accuses her of? Do you direct this play ever where Kate is as bad as people say and you still put forth the message that what happens to her is still not okay? So she can be as bad as people think, and it's still not okay. How she in in Twelfth Night, in Twelfth Night, that dickhead, Melvolio, Melvolio, thank you. I giggle at his comeuppance until a point where you guys are like, "Oh, it's terrible what happens to him." So Malvolio is unlikable. Mm-hmm. He's not likable, but yet you can still feel how wrong what happens to him. Absolutely, I think you can make Kate. One hundred percent, you can. You, you you can do it. You can leave. You can leave everything as is, and even portray her as. Great I don't think. I don't think nice. she's. I don't think she's horrible and mean and anything, even in the script. But you can make her horrible and mean, and she still does not deserve what's done to her. Yeah. Yeah. Um. She she does not deserve the level of torture that she has put through. That's a lot. How many days does she go without food? It doesn't even matter. Several. You let me go one day without food. It's the food. Trip, trip from yeah. Padua out to Petruchio's house, and then like a couple of days, and then back, or so, maybe yeah, weeks. That's my female safety and Kate. Kate is taken away from all her family, all her friends, right? She is given to the care and custody of a man she met literally the same week. He doesn't say Sunday next, get the priest here. It's Sunday I will marry her. Yeah, it, it's on like Friday. She is he says so that. quickly given by her family to this person they don't know. The no no Son courtship period, nothing. No getting to know him, no. nothing. Uh, and in fact, he's gone the entire time. From the moment he meets her, he convinces her father to let her him marry her. Um, lies about them. Oh, nope, we hit it off right away. We're going to get married. Good priest here on Sunday. Then he buggers off. He buggers off, right? So she is left completely alone. She has no safety net. She has nobody she can go to and no way of leaving. She is absolutely trapped. There is, whereas the same thing happened with a male, like you're taken away from your family, there are more options to you. Mm-hmm. You could leave, you can walk down the street, you can walk out the front door and go. But as a female, you know options, you're stuck. So that was, this rereading of it, that was a huge takeaway. And I don't know what's going on in my brain, other than I re- watched Cats today. That, it, that made that really stick out. It was just how alone she is. Even in her father's house, she's just given up. Yeah. She's thrown to the wolves. It doesn't matter what happens to Kate. Let's get rid of her. If you didn't care what happened to her, send her to a nunnery and let Bianca marry whoever she wants. Well, and and a th- a thing that goes along with that, it, you the way what you were talking about when you first brought up the female safety pin. Girls are taught no, you know, don't go to a second location. Don't go to a second don't, location. Don't you know carry approach a car from the back. Carry your keys out. Everything like that. Women are taught all these things. When it should be, men don't assault women. <laughs> like that's that's the teaching that should be done. Yeah, it's not. Women shouldn't have to be taught 
not, you know, like to protect themselves and, and to safety and numbers and everything like that. They, sh- they should be free to exist in their world without fear. And yet the conversation is never men don't be rapists. It's always women don't or, you know, do these things. And it's, you, you, you put the, like the, the society is putting the, the pressure to perform on the victim and and not on the, and that's what happens to Kate as well. And that's what happens to Kate too. And I think that's that's one of the the parts of this play that I have the most trouble reconciling. Is even if you play this as Kate working Shukio around, even if you play it, which I'll get to when I'm talking about the ways I've thought about directed, even if you play it as Shukio and Kate being in cahoots with each other to fool everybody around them, at no point does anybody in this play, ever say, hey, Petruchio, you are going too far with how you're treating him. Nobody stops him. The closest we come is him being drunk and disorderly at the wedding. But even then, it's not the way that you're treating Kate is a problem. It's you're embarrassing me as her father. At no point does anybody ever say, hey, that's that's not cool. That's too much. None to of the, the point characters where stand up for Kate. To the point where even at the end when she gives her big speech about, like, you need to obey your your husband, the aftermath of that speech from the men is, ah, you did a great job taming that one. I'm going to adopt your methods in dealing with my wife. And that's where the show ends. Even when you do Taming of Aishru and you do the ending scene with Christopher Sly, when he goes back home, Christopher Sly's parting words are, well, now I know how to deal with my wife. And that's the biggest problem for me, I think, with this play, is that acceptance of all the male characters of, yes, this is the way to treat yeah. the problematic women in our lives. And that's a problem for me. That's a problem for me with this show being put on. It's the even if you try and a find to heal culture. Yeah, it's even a, if you try and find ways to problem. fix it, that's why for me the... The only way you can perform this play is if you are performing it as a call out of that idea. Well, that's why that's why I don't I don't think it's a comedy, and I don't think I honestly don't believe it was necessarily intended to be a comedy. Um, and I think the only way to play it is to go dark with it and to play Petruchio as the horrible person that he is. And, you know, and, and everything. Yeah. Um, so in moving into our last couple of points, we've got our permapin of adaptations. Let's do that at the end because adaptations is, I feel like that's going to be a good place to, there's going to be some livelier, happier things to talk about. Adaptations fits into these questions. Um, but well, so, so do we want to talk about language or we did language? We did okay. language. Well, yeah, kind of in kind with of. her speech. I yeah. mean, her big her speech is the big language thing with this play. Yeah, and there's because there's not a whole lot of poetry prose. There's a little bit, but it know. is very clearly like servant device, servant master, yeah, that kind of stuff. So it's it's pretty standard, um, for what you'd expect. Um, but yeah, the one of the questions is how how can we fix this play? If you're going to fix it, if you do want it to be like not, I don't want to go super dark with this. 
how can I fix it else? I spent a lot of time with this question while I was taking Stephanie Gerhardt's class. And I talked to Jeff Snead about it a lot. And the workaround that I found is so much extra work. And you have to basically layer an entire silent play on top of the text. But what we talked about was in their first scene, that first interaction, to make it very clear that the attraction between them as they're bantering is mutual and immediate. And to have Petruchio come out of that conversation going, this woman that everybody said was a horrible person isn't. She's actually really smart. She's really impressive. She's super smart and yeah. everything, and I don't know what people aren't, aren't seeing about that. And to have him observe that her home life is awful, the way she's being treated is awful, and him saying, okay, uh, clearly she needs to be taken out of this situation, so I'm going to do that. I'm going to take her out of the situation, but I'm going to do it in a way that makes her family think that she's been cowed because then they'll leave her alone. And so then you build in silent action to layer on top that everything that happens between Petruchio and Kate after that point is a ruse that the two of them are playing on everybody else and that they're performing this taming aspect when there are other people around. But as soon as everybody else is gone, you show like tender, compassionate moments between the two of them. Yes, this is hard. Hang in there. It's going to work, I promise. So why do they need to do it in front of the servants? See, that's the thing. Is like there's still questions with that method of fixing it. Yeah. But like that I missed what that question was. Why do they still have to do it in front of the servants? I think just to make it complete, to like the Petruchio to sell it. Yeah. To sell it. I think it's just to sell it. Uh I think it's to to sell it. But yeah, no, I can I can see where you're going with with that. But it's and I think so you can, much work. you can really do that. And I think it's better suited to film than stage if you're going to do that. If I was going to do it, I you're right. I would want to go not just production of the show, but like adaptation of the show. Yeah. Because trying to do that nuanced of storytelling silently without adding any additional text it's really really hard it is a lot of work yeah you you want to have to actually do an adaptation yeah and so that's that's like and and in in an adaptation then you could take out the part where they in front of petruchio's servants they're doing that and instead, you know, but leave in, like, when the tailor comes, because maybe the tailor knows Baptista, that Baptista yeah. recommended the tailor. Or when Hortensio's there. Like, you could even do, you know, something where, oh, Hortensio's there, but he's, like, just outside the room. So when you're, like, you can't eat this food, like, really loudly pitching your voice, but at the same time, like, giving her food, like, no, go ahead, eat, eat something. Yeah. You know, but it, it would be so much work. It would be, it, you'd have to build an entire well, other I, play on I, top of this play. I think then that comes down to the next pin, which should it be fixed? And I say, why bother? That's kind of the question. Because I think one of the things that constantly comes up with us is when you should do the show, especially recently. It has been a continual topic of conversation of why you should 
be doing any particular Shakespeare show because these shows have existed for hundreds of years and some of them still continue to be just painfully relevant. <laughs> and yep. the, it really should come to mind when you are, you know, if you are staring down the barrel of a season that, uh, you know, if you are lucky enough to be an artistic director or if you are lucky enough to have the option to see a slew of shows, why, you know, if, no. you, if you are not asking, why are we doing this show, then you are not, you know, as an artistic director, putting together a season of Shakespeare, uh, a season of theater in general, you're not doing your job right. And I can see absolutely putting this show on. Mm -hmm. I think there's a reason for it and a calling for it. I think some women are still... I think the show is still this. incredibly relevant. Absolutely. But I but, think... I but think, I think but intentionality to needs dark. to be a question. Right. I think if the show is going to be relevant, it has to be like you said, Ryan. It has to be done dark. It has to mm -hmm. be exactly the way it is on the page. But you are calling attention for the audience to how awful this is. Yeah, you, it can't, you can't be just you can't, performed for laughs. You can't just do the text as is without intentionality of of showing how it is this isn't this isn't a blue hair show this no, isn't no. something that you can just put on like cuz on the surface and honestly until very recently i kind of that's kind of how i felt about it is because it is one of those shows that has you know, probably just based on title alone, there are, because it is it just jumps off the page. There's a ton of name recognition Absolutely. with this play. There's so Shakespeare many festivals done this 14 times. It's one of their most often performed. And there's there's what Cole Porter, uh, yeah. you know, speaking of adaptations, there Cole are, Porter adapted this as a musical, Kiss Me Kate. I it's would incredibly I, popular. I would venture that this play has more adaptations than most other Shakespeare plays. There are a lot of foreign language adaptations of this play. There are film versions of this play. But the idea, the trope of a strong-willed woman being brought to heel is appealing. Not to me, clearly. Not to, me, not, Just, not to me either. <laughs> and not but, to Chase. But to... I think it speaks to a lot of cultural societies the 50s the 50s so when we're talking about what one i was always raised with oh beth you'll love taming let's sit down and watch it you'll really relate to kate you're just like a kate which is shitty now that Cass points out it's a shitty thing to say it's a shitty thing yeah. to say to someone well no um, okay it's 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 not shitty if kate is so the a strong-willed independent woman the first one i ever saw was the Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, which I'm sure is a lot of people's... That was the first taming experience for me as well. It's possible it's my first Shakespeare. I don't know. I watched it. I remember watching it with my parents when I was young. And she was fiery. And she was intense. And I loved her. Um, and in the end, she got her romance and she was happy with her husband. That was my takeaway. That was my useful takeaway from it. She got a romance. She gave up everything she was, and she got her husband, and she was happy. Which, 
is what I see when I watch it now. Like, if you bow everything you are, you can be happy. And then there's 10 Things I Hate About You, which I watched as a teenager. So yet well, again... it came out in 1999. Yeah, I was still, I was still in You were school. still a teenager. I was still in high school. Yeah, so I went from Taming of the Shrew was this to Taming of the Shrew is now 10 Things I Hate About You. And 10 Things I Hate About You fixes this play. It fixes my it issues. Is, it is it. the best adaptation of this play, but in my opinion. in terms of this question of should it be fixed, you're right that if you play it dark and you play it straight, it can have a lot of relevance to today. But I think that because of the issues I brought up earlier with the takeaway at the end being the men going, yes, this is how I should do it. I think there's so many people who could see it and not understand what you're trying to do with it. I agree. Who miss the point and that can be harmful. Mm -hmm. And so for me on that end, like, I don't know why you do this play and not another play that can make your point better. I'm not saying this would ever be my first choice for trying to make this point. Like, if you want to do a Shakespeare that points out the callous way that women are treated by men, do Measure for Measure. Oh, yeah. It does it better. Yeah, and no, so, I, I agree. Wives. And s- no, don't ever do Mary Wives. I, I said don't, I, you know, don't do Mary Wives, but even that one I feel like is better. It's just a... I, yes! But I kind think, of the point. I think there are some... I think, I think one of the things that we do well on this podcast is, and we've talked about this before, is we look at all of this wide range of Shakespeare, but we take each play on its own, and we really do talk about, like, is this a good play, or is it just, like, people go, well, that's Shakespeare. And I think with this one, as much as I say, yes, there are ways that I could direct it, there are ways that I, you know, would be intrigued to see it. Honestly, having read it now, having read it for class in college, having read it now, my gut reaction with this one is let's let's put this one on the shelf and leave it there. Let's let's stop bringing this one out because it's there's so many problems that have to be addressed, yeah, and there it, are so many people who wouldn't take you the way you would have to address them the way that they would need to. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't think this play needs to be done. Um, and, and I agree with you. Like like uh, like you just said, if done the way that I think the play needs to be done, there is a still it's it's still a non-zero chance that people are going to walk away from it and still take away that you give up everything you are and you can be happy. That guy did right. Yeah. And I think that's harmful and I think And I I agree. Even even if you're even if every action on stage shows that he is wrong there are still people that will root for him. Yeah. And so I completely agree that this doesn't need to be done. It has already been yeah. done in the best way that it can be done. Which is still problematic. Which is still problematic. I yeah. 100% agree with you. But let's talk about 10 Things I Hate About You. So I, first of all, despite its problematic nature, I love this movie. It's I love a great it. movie. I love it, I love and it, I love it. Yes, listen. There are still elements of it that are troubling. Um, there's a lot of casual ableism. I watched it today. Um, but there's a lot of really casual ableism in it where they're just kind of dismissive of disabilities. Um, the R word gets used in a line at one point. Um, there's a lot of... It's been a minute since I've watched it, so... Yeah. There's a lot of stalking. 
So, yeah. She says no frequently, loudly, and clearly. And, and he's he, still following her around. To the point where he publicly embarrasses her. I'm sorry, but if somebody did a song and dance number getting chased by the cops, when I watched it on TV, I'm like, oh, that's so cute. He's so romantic. But if you did that to me, that's I would so be mad. horribly embarrassed. Horribly embarrassed by it. And, and she, well, yeah, he goes the John Cusack route of trying to get the girl. He does, but... Which is stalking. She should have given him a pen. <laughs> but for me, what I took away from watching it today that I really appreciated is that the first time they really, like, they have genuine connections mm-hmm. early mm-hmm. on. Yep. And then when they're at the party and she gets drunk, he's taking care of her. He's watching out for her, and at the end of the night, she goes in to kiss him, and he won't kiss her because she's drunk. And there is that moment in a 1999 rom-com of the guy going, you can't give consent to this right now. Yeah. Even though you're here saying you want it, you can't give consent, and I'm not taking advantage of you. And the reason that she's mad at him when he, you know, wins her back with the song and dance. The reason she's mad at him is because she feels like that was a rejection. And so there's a certain level of he tries to talk to her to explain things. He's like, I still agree with you. Like, I would be super embarrassed by that whole situation. Well, there's also the fact that she got, she did not get in trouble for like, flashing her teacher there are there are very troubling aspects with the teachers in that school and how they relate to their students it's there's 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 some problems with it right doesn't doesn't the english teacher ask if she's on her period no one of the the dickhead students says that but no there there's definitely there's definitely a lot of problems still even with it but it is the best adaptation of this, this yeah. play. Because well, it builds it into a genuine relationship between the two characters. And at the end of the play, when they've come to terms and everything's good and we go to our party or our wedding, they're going to the prom, right? Yeah. Yeah. The Both of the sisters have a moment where they can come together and they punch the shit out of Hortensio or whatever his name is. Uh, yeah. I don't, I, I don't know what his I think name he's is. supposed to be Gremio. I think they combine Hortensio and Lucencio and- into Cameron. Um, because they only have two guys buying for me. Yeah, to simplify everything. Um, but yeah, so Bianca has her powerhouse moment where she punches him and knees him in the groin for how he's treated her sister and how he's treated her date and how he's treated her, and that's a really powerhouse moment. And what I do appreciate about the way that they do the Petruchio adaptation of his character is that it's clear that he is initially in it for the money. But that the more time he spends with her, the more he comes to, like, legitimately admire who she is as a person. And he does not ask her to change a single thing about herself. No. Nope. And He doesn't. And at the end, he asks her to go to prom, not because he's gotten paid to do it. Because at that point, he spent most of the money on Bands his and stuff. big, elaborate song and dance number. Um, but... He wants to go to, to spend time with her. And then at the prom, she finds out that he was paid to take her out. And she ends it and walks away. And he doesn't do, well, he does a little bit, do the, like, chasing after her. Like, no, 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 you don't understand this understanding, like, all this kind of stuff. It's immediately but in the end, following. And that's, yeah. it's less of a pursuing after and more of a, 
no, 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 relax. Her. And yeah. She's like, he does break into hurts. her car, but he gives her a guitar, so I think that evens out. I don't think he broke into the car. I think she just didn't lock it, because, like, she closed to it after school and her window's down, and, like, that's not a surprise to her. So, listen. Lock your car. Lock your Roll car. Roll your windows. Um, but... If you don't want strange men he, leaving guitars in your car... But, but I do, so it's all good. Like, that's the thing, is that that movie holds Petruchio accountable for the mistakes he makes. So... And that's important when you are adapting this story. He is the one at the end of that movie who is portrayed as being in the wrong. He is the one who has to change and he accepts it. his actions. She doesn't have to change anything about herself. The father is as well. Yes. Such an update. Not only does he accept both of his daughters. Yes, I, lo- I love I love that they made him an OBGYN. I'm up to my elbows and placenta every day is one of the best lines of any movie. So while Cassie was watching this movie, I was in this room setting up all of the gear so that we could go tonight. And it became a bit of a process. But in the rate, in the techno rage that I was in, you know, just consumed in that line, particularly cut through like, What's going on I'm there? <laughs> I'm it's up a to much my better, elbows and placenta. It's a much better motivation for the father because he's not being a dick. He is a guy who delivers babies and sees a lot of like teen mothers come through, and he doesn't want that to happen to his children. Well, and, yep. and he, the he, his reasoning because he doesn't want Bianca to do something stupid, and he knows Kate won't. And so, the- and so that's why that's why his motivation in that is, yeah, you can go to prom. You've had me on the bench for years. When Bianca your- lets me still play a couple innings. Yeah, yeah. When your sister goes, yeah, watch that scene in particular, I, Beth. And I, I, I know so much of this movie. I haven't seen the movie in a long time. Yeah, but I, know I haven't it, watched it in years. I know yeah. so much of it word for word because it was so important to me growing up. Because here is a strong woman who knows what she wants. It's also the reason I played to Sarah Lawrence, just so everybody knows. Um, she knows what she wants. She knows how to get it. She's not dealing with anybody's shit while she's getting there. And these guys that are coming after her who want her to do what they want. I mean, she kicked some guy so hard that his balls. Because he groped her. He groped her. Um, and his testicle retrieval surgery went well. Yeah, Alice no, and Janie's character in that movie is, is so, so problematic, perfect. but is also but, so but like I like I said, what I like about is the father's reasoning in this is he knows that Bianca's more likely to make a bad choice, and so he knows that Kate's not going to, and he says, "Okay, well, when your sister agrees to go to prom, yeah, gets a date to prom, then you can go, yeah, because she's not going to make a bad choice, yeah, and and at no point is this strong female character in this movie asked." to change neither by anybody she's asked to change by like the dingoes at her school but But she she ignores them and she you know is better off for them and she has this this big conversation with her sister about how she used to change herself for them went out with joey for like months and nights yeah and and how she realized that that was not the way she wanted to live her life. And so at that point, she decided, I'm not going to apologize for who I am anymore. Not going to change who I am for any of these motherfuckers. And I think she softens over the course of the movie so that she's not quite as, like, in-your-face abrasive. She kind of learns that she can be who she is and she can be true to herself without and be a strong character. Without having to necessarily stab people. With, yeah, without having to be on the offensive Mm-hmm. in every interaction 
But that is, I think, positive character growth for her. But in terms of, like, who she is as a person and how she connects to people, nobody asks her to change that over the course of the movie. And, in fact, the sister isn't asked. Like, the sister changes her personality, kind of. I don't know. The personality we meet Bianca with in the movie is much more vapid than she actually is. Yeah. She says at one point, she's like, I like being adored. Yeah. Like, she wants people to think of her that way, so that's how she acts. Yeah. But she's actually smarter than that. Right. So... The story that I think everybody wants out of Taming of the Shrew, the story of, of a strong-willed woman who finds her equal and comes out in love and happy um, and not needing to be abrasive, I think is done in 10 Things I Hate About You. And I don't think you can do it with a script at hand in Taming of the Shrew. I don't think you can do it any better than it was in that and yeah. that film and I think that well, the, the you, two worst characters are the father and Petruchio. And they yeah. fix them in 10 and Things I Hate About They do. They absolutely do. But I think what people want Petruchio and Kate to be is Beatrice and Benedict. They do. Uh, 100%. We've, they want them to be Beatrice, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Beatrice and Benedict. I agree. 100%. That's what they want them to be. They've just seen Much Ado case, too many times. And in so that case, go watch Much Ado. I like the idea that Shakespeare looked at these characters and said, okay, I'm going to take the female and soften her just a little bit, make her playful and not bitter. And I can take... Witty and playful. I can she take, still is a little bitter. She is a little bitter, but she's not, like, defined by her bitterness. Yes. And I can take Petruchio and make him a human being. And he's still kind of a dick. <laughs> he's still kind of a dick. But... but yeah. That's, it's even in his name. Benedict. But he'll grow he's out of Benedict, it. Benedict, but he'll, but he'll grow out of it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Much of don't. Much of yeah. don't. So definitely, 10 Things I Hate About You, worth watching. Yes, there are parts of it that are still problematic. problematic and I think that that movie could be updated and remade to fix even those issues. Um Right. But where are you going to get the chemistry of Julia Stiles and Heath Ledger? So there is a Taming of the Shrew. I just looked up adaptations to make sure we weren't missing any. There's one I have to go find. Starring John Cleese. Yeah, it's from I'm 1980. Sorry. Yeah, I gotta go find John Cleese being true. Yeah. yeah. It's gotta happen to me. Is it is it a Monty Python? I don't know, but I gotta it's find BBC. out. It's um, BBC. But yeah, so this uh, this is Taming the Shrew. Um, it's a fan favorite that really doesn't deserve it. It really could stay on the shelf. I, yeah, I feel like it's a, let's go to the Shakespeare play favorite, not a, I study Shakespeare favorite. Yeah, and that, that's, that could be, I just, yeah, but I don't have, I don't have a lot of people knocking down my door telling me this is their favorite Shakespeare play. Like, but I, I can't have, think of anybody who's told me this is their favorite Shakespeare play. If but if you run in a festival yeah. and you want to get a bunch of butts and seats. If you want to make some dollars and get butts and seats, pull, trot this motherfucker out. And, you yeah. know, maybe but get your best director on working on it. But yeah, trot, trot this, trot this yeah. motherfucker out if you want to get some butts and seats. But you I can just understand ten. that you're putting on a problematic, very, yeah. very problematic I can play. think of ten other plays that will also get butts and seats that are better. Yeah. So, so yeah, we've got at um, least two of them coming up. We oh do. yeah, we've got two plays. Two but I'll plays tell coming. you, Macbeth reads totally differently. Mm. Just saying. Yeah. Also with Hamlet, not. Both not those plays same. will get butts and seats, though. They will get butts and seats. Absolutely. 
And they're better and less problematic than what we're working with right here. Yeah. By far, actually. There's no active gaslighting. There is very well, there's little, a little active there's, gaslighting. There's a little bit. There's In, a little bit. <laughs> yeah. There's ha- a little bit. Hamlet's uncle is not straightforward. Or the or Gertrude is a little worse than you think she is. Yeah, but Hamlet's But we're going to talk about that next ha- time. Hamlet's uncle, also the bad guy. <laughs> we're going to talk about that next time on the Shakespeare podcast. And I promise I will actually reread Hamlet and not just watch the Zeffirelli Hamlet again. I love the Zeffirelli Hamlet, though, and we'll talk about that next time, too. Um, but yeah, this has been Shakespeare. I like that one. I'm Ryan Halfill. I'm Beth Horst. I'm Cassie Greenlee. I'm Chase Greenlee. Happy Fourth of July. Nothing to really celebrate this no, year. No. It's, it's a rough one. Country, <laughs> country's a shit show. Moose out front should have told you that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no shit. Yeah, we speaking can't really. Of, coming in from Canada, speaking clearly. Speaking of problematic episodes. <laughs> can't, can't really celebrate till we're all free. Um, I guess that was a little political. I'm, oh, well, it's I'm not cool like it's it. the it's not like it's the first time we've gotten political. I, I, no within, cops in pride, Black Lives Matter. Within the Within the first ten episodes of Another Path, we go into a fairly long diatribe of why the current prison system is a problem. Y'all look it up. Private prisons are a fucking problem. Moose out front shouldn't have had to told you. Why are you waiting for a moose to tell you about that? Uh, By the way, if if you need to, if you need something new to listen to, go go find Run the Jewels 4. Give that a listen. Run the Jewels for what? No, Run the Jewels 4. For what? It's their fourth album. For what of what? I'm cutting this Just now. Just listen to it. <laughs> Say goodnight, John Boy. Goodnight, John. Jo- no, you don't understand. We've already cut. Oh, okay. <laughs> This has been a Ghostlight Media production.